If you don't have another metric to substitute it with, you're gonna just like default to attendance. And so then you eventually, inevitably, end up making decisions and investing in strategies that are made in an effort to see more people attend. If it's like, if that's what the ultimate measurement is, you're gonna make decisions that index towards that measurement. So you need to replace that measurement tool with something else. You're listening to the Pocket Pulpit Podcast with Sarah Kinzer and Hector Martinez, part of the TCD Podcast Network. Welcome everyone to another episode of the Pocket Pulpit Podcast, where we spend time exploring ministry in the social media settings. Uh, What does it look like for the church to be in online spaces using social media to advance the the mission, the movement of the kingdom? Today, we have a a great guest with us. I'm super excited uh, to talk with Brady Shear. But before I introduce Brady, Sarah, how are you doing? I'm I'm good. I'm doing quite well. Good. Good. Well, good to to be back here. And and this is an exciting uh, episode recording. Um, So, so excited to to be here. So uh, today, uh, like I said, we have Brady Shear, who is the founder of Pro Church Tools. I got to get that right because someone might think uh, Pro Tools, uh, but the founder of Pro Church Tools uh, and the creator of church tech platform, Nucleus. We often say that there are very few experts in the field of digital ministry because it is a developing field. But in this developing field, Brady isn't just an expert, he is the expert. Uh, so we're so excited to have him with us today. <laughs> uh, so Brady, just tell us a little bit about uh, who you are, who are your people, and what is the Brady backstory? Yeah, sure. Uh, quite the introduction. I, I don't know if I've ever gotten that before. Very, very humbled for you to say that. Uh, I'd have to disagree, but we'll we'll take what we can get. Uh, yeah, so <laughs> I live in uh, Niagara-on-the-Lake, Ontario, Canada. Uh, married, two children, two daughters. And I started in the digital world, uh, right, basically during the inception of digital. So I, I grew up um, in a really vibrant youth group. And I wanted to be a youth pastor. So I went up to Bible college, uh, got my degree in theology and youth ministry. Uh, But when I went to do my internship during Bible college, I got connected to a new church plant. And because of my age, they were basically like, hey, how about you do social? And here's a DSLR camera. And here's a MacBook. You should probably do some web design, do some graphic design, communications in general. And so I start picking up these skills on the fly. And I fall in love with uh, the intersection of the online world and creativity. And uh, I guess there's a third intersecting point, the church. And I go back to my classes and I'm looking around and I'm thinking, you know what? The same thing that happened to me is going to happen to these future youth pastors and lead pastors of smaller rural churches, because that's you know where you get your start if you're a lead pastor in your 20s, generally, uh, worship pastors. And so I figure if I'm learning these skills, and this is, you know, 2010-ish, my friends, peers are going to need them as well. So I start basically teaching everything as I learn. So we started our YouTube channel in 2012, the Pro Church Tools Show, our podcast, similar time. Uh, We were blogging uh, a ton back then, uh, got into social media, Instagram, Twitter, Facebook, all that stuff. And from there, we introduced products after we had started building an audience, which eventually led us to software, uh, our company now from a profitability side, we build software uh, for churches, website, 
online giving, people management, uh, spiritual practice and prayer, uh, forms and signups and registrations and email under our platform Nucleus. And uh, the thing that ne we never stopped doing was creating the content because as we all know, like you mentioned, the social media world is developing and it's still rapidly changing. You know, it's a it's an unruly adolescent right now, about 15 years old. All right. Hey there, Jeff from the Church Digital, Digital Church Network here. We're going to get you back to the podcast here in a second. Sarah, Hector, thanks for letting me borrow the audience. Church, we've got an incredible opportunity to help churches like yours connect with spiritual explorers digitally. Now, maybe you've heard of this thing, He Gets Us. You've seen their ads on the NFL games or social media or even billboards around town. You see, He Gets Us is a U.S.-based ad campaign that connects people seeking spiritual answers with pastors and volunteers who have the answers to these spiritual questions and ultimately connects them to your physical or digital church. This is a great opportunity that's only going to expand as He Gets Us is running several Super Bowl ads. That's right. Imagine the potential reach and your church can be a part of this for free. That's right. You get 12 months of He Gets Us. 12 months of Spiritual Explorers, 12 months of the technology, uh, the platform, all of it for free. No strings attached, no hidden fees. We just want to get people connected to God through the church. So here's what we want you to do. For more information and to sign up, go to thechurch.digital slash he gets us. That's thechurch.digital slash he gets us. Or for questions, Feel free to text me, 484-324-8724. Hector, Sarah, let me hand it back to y'all. Thank you. It's still rapidly changing. You know, it's a, it's an unruly adolescent right now, about 15 years old. And uh, every year, every month, it seems, there's something new to tackle, something new to figure out. And what's great about that is that there's always new opportunity for people that are jumping in for the first time. Uh, the challenge is if you've been around for a while, you've always got to continue to reinvent and relearn these platforms that are that are new and developing and something that works maybe last year isn't working anymore. So uh, fun space to be in. And that's a little background for me and my, my team. So we want to know what platforms you're on and what is your preferred platform? So for personal use, I like using Twitter the most because I am a degenerate and, uh, you know, Twitter is where us, uh, <laughs> us cynics go to live. Uh, and now my Twitter is mostly dedicated to sports and uh, politics, regrettably, and uh, a little bit of theology here and there. Um, I also love TikTok. Uh, absolutely love the discovery algorithm. Uh, for as much as TikTok gets uh, slandered for its shortcomings, what I have found using it personally is being introduced to things that I never would have come across otherwise. Uh, we talk a lot in traditional legacy social media platforms, should be Facebook, Instagram, also Twitter. Um, they're built around the social graph, and the social graph is your friends and family. And so from there, the algorithm will basically determine which of your friends and family's posts uh, to see. But it's working within what you have curated yourself over many years. Then there was a little bit of discovery, you know, the Instagram discover tab. But, but TikTok is something unlike anything else, because without you following uh, anyone in your social graph, it can learn you over the course of, you know, days and weeks 
And I've been introduced to things that I just never would have stumbled across that have deeply enriched my life, which uh, has been very rewarding. So big fan of TikTok. Uh, and professionally for churches, uh, Facebook groups are still uh, very integral. Uh, Instagram, which used to be for, you know, the 30 and under crowd, but now it's for the 40 and under crowd. And then for, for student ministry, for sure, TikTok, Snapchat, and uh, hey, newcomer on the scene, Be Real. Mm-hmm. Yeah, our youth pastor has Be Real, and I have a teenager and a preteen, and they have Be Real, and all the kids have it. And I have gotten to appear in some of our youth group kids' Be Reels, which is, you know, and then other people, like, I saw you on Be Real. I feel like a real celebrity, you know? Uh-huh. Hector, do you have Be Real? I do not have Be Real. I did hear about the Be Real controversy, uh, the posts that came out late or the, I don't, I don't have it. I don't know of it, uh, but I did see, apparently it's a t- uh, trend, Twitter trending topic. That, that's hard to say. Uh, hmm. But apparently they forgot to tell people when to post or it was after midnight in some places. So, Oh yeah, the last two were after midnight. So my friends on the West Coast, they're like posting, they're like, oh, it's sunset here. I, I'm, I've been asleep for hours and you know, <laughs> I, I miss it. And then you lose your streak. And, but that, I mean, if that, the, the idea behind Be Real for those that are unfamiliar is it's one post a day and it takes the photo with both your front camera and rear camera. And the time to post is not determined by you. Once a day, everyone on Be Real gets the same notification at the same time. It says, hey, it's time to be real. Take a photo. You got two minutes. Countdown begins. Well, the nature of that is that there are time zones and uh, people are asleep sometimes and awake sometimes in different parts of the world. So I'm not sure if they adjust that per time zone. I I know at least from Pacific to Eastern time, they don't. Um, But perhaps perhaps if it becomes, you know, especially big in Australia, I, I don't know if it is yet or not some new challenges for be real you know yeah Yeah. Yeah, yeah. again just developing right it's the uh seeing what what is a a great idea and what might what might work in one area or might what might excuse me might not work in another just the challenges that come up and present themselves and in classic social media fashion just yesterday you know tiktok announced a new feature called tiktok now which is a complete ripoff of ripoff of be real uh, except you, instead of just a photo, you can post up to 10 seconds of video. And instead of two minutes, you get three minutes. So really innovation on TikTok's part. And, you know, it was so funny reading the comments uh, on TikTok as this new feature was being released. People are just like, when will these platforms learn? We just want one platform dedicated to each thing we like. We don't want these conglomerates, these all-in-ones that are trying to do everything and, you know, that, that speaks to the place that we're in with social media right now. Uh, Facebook is in a really precarious position because they've had their first drop in revenue really in the history of their company over an extended period. And so, you know, Zuckerberg on, on some calls with shareholders, on some calls with reporters has said like, hey, in the next year, expect to see twice as much content on both Instagram and Facebook from accounts that you do not follow because they're feeling the pressure to re-architect really their entire ecosystem to be more like TikTok. They're investing billions into their own algorithm that can compete with TikTok's algorithm. Uh, There was a recent test that Instagram did where they tried to be more like TikTok and and, and it went quite poorly a couple of months ago. It was so bad they had to walk it back after the public pressure was so strong because they were like, hey, we're going to show you some like content that you've never seen before, except they didn't have an algorithm that was good at it. 
So unlike TikTok that, you know, for me is enriching my life, Instagram was like robbing me of my joy because they weren't showing my friends and family and they weren't even showing me content that I, I didn't know I yet liked, but did find enjoyable. It was just the worst of both worlds. And so again, truly uh, a couple of years ago, I was like, y'all social is changing. TikTok is going to change things. It's three years later. And now we're starting that change all over again, as TikTok has dramatically shifted the landscape. Everyone else is playing catch up. There are some that are predicting that as Facebook now tries to catch up to TikTok, it's going to, you know, really be the first steps towards its demise and this monopolistic uh, grip and grasp that it has on the social media world because it's abandoning the social graph, which is really its strength. The reason Facebook has been able to resist every and all oncomers to this point is because they're just so big, they can either write a check and absorb you the way they did with Instagram, or if you refuse their check, Snapchat, they can take your feature that you popularized and bring it into their own ecosystem and say, look, we kind of cut you off at the knees. But then uh, TikTok was like, well, we're just going to play with a new set of rules. We don't care about the social graph. We're going to invent an algorithm. You got one friend. One friend only, and it's the algorithm. It's the best friend you'll ever need. And now <laughs> Facebook's on defense for the first time. So what does that portend for the next 12, 24, 36 months? It's, it's all very interesting. Yeah. yeah. Well, you know, I think a lot about how the algorithm has us all kind of like Pavlov's dog, you know? It just hmm. rewards us, rewards us. And then when an algorithm changes, I mean, you have to acknowledge that it would be as if they turned the dog around. You know, and said, we're going to give you the same treat. It's just going to be from a different direction. Yeah. And, and so they're not looking where the dog was originally being trained. Yeah. And so the dog is going to be trained to look in another direction. And so, you, you know, the companies are going to have to adjust so that the dog will um, go back to accepting their treat. Yeah. And what that means for us is, you know, it's, it's, it hasn't been great for users in the social media world. Um, I'm a big advocate for social media. I think it can be used for tremendous good, but it can also be used for tremendous harm. And the the reality is, you know, we see this with, with, with Facebook and, and this is not, despite living in this society myself, you know, this doesn't to me feel like a kingdom minded principle, but Facebook as a publicly traded company has the pressure to organizationally be going up and to the right indefinitely. And it has done that for more than a decade. It's one of the most, you know, popular uh, and financially profitable companies in the world, you know, top 25 for sure. And yet, even with that unprecedented level of success in this industry, they still feel like they have to make these dramatic and sweeping changes to chase this kind of carrot on a stick, this up and to the right. And, And it's just not realistic. But that's the, you know, capitalistic pressure, which unfortunately for social media users is not always the best experience for us, but hey, you know, profit is God. Yeah, yeah, and ooh, you say profit is God. Well, for you know, uh, yeah, for them. Like Facebook, it is. Yeah. yeah, and so that is like that's the temptation for the church that sort of you know to to chase profit, and I think about it like follower fever. You know, like you just want to mm-hmm. get the the likes, but I I think that we have built a culture. And I, I think back to now, Brady, I think you're younger than me. And I know for a fact that Hector is younger than me, you know, I, as a 20 something at the turn of the century, like I can remember where a youth group kid could cycle through 
their, um, their t-shirts that were just brands that had been edited to include something about Jesus, Jesus pieces instead of Reese's pieces, or, um, there was one that was a ketchup bottle. I can't remember what that was. I can see a Mountain Dew one in my head, but I don't know what it, uh, what the pun was. Yeah. And I, I can think about it starting in, in that era and maybe it started before, but, but where we began to brand Christianity and brand our faith and, and tie it to corporations and build models that were in effect enterprising our faith, corporatizing our faith, building up a very consumer-driven entertainment model. And we talked about this previously with Elias Dummer, and that was a really interesting conversation from his perspective, both as a, an artist and someone who was involved in marketing. The first time, so you talk about Twitter is your, is your place, you know, that's our home sweet home too. And the first time that I interacted with you was on Twitter and somebody had asked if money was no object, who would you get to help you with your online church strategy? And I thought about it for a minute. And and my response was, if money was not an issue, I'd hire the person for whom money wasn't the object. And then I replied that I would pick you because you were willing to give away this expertise for free, just all over the place. You're Mm -hmm. offering training and information and thought starters and challenges to people. And I've seen you engage, not just acting that way and delivering that, but speaking into the area of ethics of church businesses. And I think it's a really important thing for the church to understand, not only because the rising generation, the, the younger generation is really quick to recognize a sales pitch and a trumped up product, mm-hmm. but also because we have a responsibility as people of the kingdom to be ethical in this area and to not, not use our faith as use our faith for profit. Can you think of where you see that coming into the church and becoming a problem? Is that something that you've seen or noticed or? Yeah, absolutely. I think it's, it's inevitable when you are an organization in a capitalistic culture, as much as you might want to uh, resist that, you know, indefinite up into the right mentality, whatever it takes to, you know, see those numbers go up. Um, it's going to seep into the church world, irrespective of your position. You're trying to resist it. Now, being aware of that is really the first step to combating it. And, you know, when I talk with my friends about like, you know, what are some of the challenges that churches are facing, uh, as calloused as it might sound to talk about, a lot of the times our discussion comes back to finances. And, And one of the reasons for that is because the church in North America, in the West, especially North America, and and America in particular, has thrived on the back of cultural Christianity for the last, you know, century, couple of centuries. And that is shrinking and has taken a very big step back since the, uh, since right around 2005, 2010. Now that doesn't mean social media is the cause, that might just be um, correlation. But that is what we see when we look at the numbers, whether through Barna or through Pew Research, you can see this decline in church attendance across generations. You can see decline in church giving. You see a decline in trust in the church as an institution. And I think a lot of that is because the internet exposes us to new worldviews. 
I think the deconstruction movement amongst you know people my age was largely um, let's say it was fueled like the fire that fueled it was that any person could listen to a podcast and suddenly could find people that were having the same questions and doubts and challenges as they were. And maybe in their local congregation, there wasn't really anyone else like that, or there was no one talking about it like that. But when they got on a podcast, they could hear people that were, and suddenly they were connected with people around the world or around the continent that were dealing with the same things. So what this all pretends for the church is that now you don't have people going to church just because that's what we do as a country or that's what we do as a culture. You have those that are really committed going, and you have those that are maybe a little bit uh, like wandering, trying to find a place where they feel like they fit in. And then there's a big group that really only went because like that's just what we do in this country, in this city, in this state, in this region. So when that goes away, what else happens? Well, the donation and tithe money from those people also goes away. And when you as an organization are strapped for cash, even as a nonprofit, and the margins are slim, and you have to start cutting things. And what we do know about church budgets is that the number one and two line items are going to be personnel and facilities in some order. Suddenly, you don't have the liberty to make decisions that are as principled, because you're like, we just have to survive. We have to keep the lights on. And we had a lot of overhead in this building. We've got a lot of overhead with the staff. And, and sure, we would like to do something dramatically different with church. Maybe we'd like to try a different expression. We'd like to make some meaningful changes to the model. But if we do that, the few people or the select few that still exist in our congregation I mean, are they going to put up with that? There is one expression of church that is the, you know, 95% plus dominant expression in our continent in the West. You try to do something different because that's such an unfamiliar expression, because it looks so different. People often reject that as that's not church. Now, if we were very familiar with like a bunch of different expressions of church, we probably wouldn't feel that way. But when it's so homogenous, something that looks different must be wrong because that's not how we've always done it. Well, I mean, you can see through that argument when you put it like that, but that's just not how human nature works. And so what that does is it hamstrings our ability to maybe make principled or, you know, decisions where we're like, maybe, okay, you know what, we've gone a bit too consumeristic, but like, let's push against that. Do you have the privilege to do that? Do you have the bandwidth to do that? Or is a risk like that maybe meaning like the margin that barely exists right now to keep our doors open, it gets even smaller. Because there are many influential churches um, in the in, in that are quite large that may not feel this as strongly, but ninety plus percent of churches in uh, in America are three hundred or fewer, and most of those are a hundred or fewer. And so, if you go from a hundred or seventy five in attendance to thirty five, that's dramatic. And 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 so I. The, the re, again, it's kind of callous to go straight to like, well, the budget says so, but I, I'm a very, uh, I, I'm a practical thinker. Uh, it's how I approach things by default. And what I don't like to do is like say to church, hey, you just need to try this totally different thing. And, and coming from social media, I often hear pastors or church leaders be like, Brady, like what you're saying is compelling. Where would I find the time? Where would I find the hours to learn the expertise to then have the time to do what you're suggesting? And so to, to simply say that, hey, we got to like divest ourselves from this model. Uh, yes, overall, 
But when it comes to like these individual churches, I also I recognize the struggle and how it might not even seem realistic. So, you know, I was talking with a pastor today and he was saying, he's like, you know, we're, our, our whole faith is about resurrection. He's like, but we are so afraid to let something die. Mm-hmm. He's like, I, he's, and, and he was kind of like maybe coming to grips with like, what does the future of his church look like? He's like, I, I, I care for my church. I love it. I feel so fulfilled in the work we're doing. But it's so weird, like there's so many fewer people in this room than there was a few years ago from 10 years ago. And yeah, I could like, I don't know, try to do some like surface level things to get more people in the door. But like, am I fighting this this wave that is beyond my control? Like, I'm not the one, I, I haven't 100% contributed to trust in the church as an institution being down. Um, I didn't contribute to inflation. I didn't contribute to this downturn in the economy. I, I, I didn't kick off a global pandemic. And yet my church is the one that feels all these consequences. And, and you know, his hopeful tones, he's like, what I know is that like, I'm not concerned about the global church at all or the people of Jesus persisting. I, I'm quite confident in that. He's like, but what about my own expression? Which is just one part. And I care about it because it's mine. He's like, but maybe that, you know, maybe one day it will you know, not be here anymore? And how do I reconcile that being okay, but because it's my thing, it feels so devastating. Mm -hmm. Yeah, I think about, you were talking about the one expression. And I think maybe what I have seen across the church is a desire for that one expression. And so um, I've seen people, you see people buy into the products and and the image and the and presenting the same package. And I say this as someone who, I love strategy. I love putting together like a good plan and executing it well. I love seeing a goal and being like, there is that, you know, this is what we're shooting for and getting getting us there. That's like what I love to do and I'm good at doing. Um, so you have people who are like me who say, okay, this is the one expression. This is what we're going for. And I'm going to build something that can make it easy for everybody to accomplish that. And that comes along upside the church, right? And I'm just going to charge 1995 or, you know, $8 billion, whatever it is. I am not the finance person for developing how much my imaginary model costs, but, um, (laughs) but it's, it's riding that line of, because I feel like those things that support for the church is helpful and good, the strategy and that that's a gifting from God that God uses to, to build up the church. It's that balance though, of how do you, how do you utilize those tools and still remain that the goal is not the one expression. The goal is to honor God and to faithfully represent Jesus, to not misrepresent the gospel in chasing the one expression so i think i know these like conversations can get really esoteric mm-hmm. and so if i may i'm going to try to make this like really practical because what every one of these conversations eventually comes down to from my vantage point is how are we measuring and quantifying success at our church and if you don't like the word success Uh, replace that with fulfillment of mission because to me success for a church is fulfilling your mission so 
because of the nature of church, which was largely based around these like one hour gatherings for, you know, centuries, uh, we elevated the metric of attendance as like the ultimate quantifier for success in our churches. And the problem with something like attendance is that it can be an incredibly misleading, inaccurate, and, and frankly, problematic metrics. Like, for instance, church attendance can only tell you if more people are in the seats this week than last week or this year than last year. So what that means is that it can in no way identify if the existing people in your church are becoming more like Jesus. And so if we know that, like, you know, cultural Christianity is shrinking, and you might have just, oh, this is like the, this is our small faithful group. And, and maybe they do a good job of inviting a friend or a family member every now and then. But like, what, what if it's unrealistic to just see, again, indefinite up into the right growth as a church? Well, if attendance is how we either formally or informally, meaning we, no, we don't care about attendance that much. But if you don't have another metric to substitute it with, you're going to just like default to attendance. And so then you eventually, inevitably, end up making decisions and investing in strategies that are made in an effort to see more people attend. If it's like, if that's what the ultimate measurement is, you're gonna make decisions that index towards that measurement. So you need to replace that measurement tool with something else. And so th this is something that we've been talking about for, for, for years in our organization. Because underneath every fun social media strategy, like, oh, here's how to repurpose your sermons for TikTok so that you can reach dramatically more people online with the good news of Jesus than you could in person. Okay, but then what? Oh, he, you know, here's how to like set up your Facebook group. As, okay, but then what? It's like, for what purpose? And what we always come back to is this idea of next steps. And what we don't want, churches full of passive spectators, what we want are churches full of active participants. And active participant requires some type of involvement. And so a next step could be attending a service. Yeah, it's great to track that. But what if that was just one of the 17 next steps that your church would track? And now we can get really granular with something. So it's not just esoteric, it becomes practical. You can see it black and white on the screen. But it doesn't just care if people are attending and, you know, dovetailing off that, consuming, but signing up to serve, praying for one another, submitting their own prayer requests, uh, being in a small group, uh, working with the children, giving, baptism, committing their life to Jesus, however your church chooses to quantify that. And there's no such thing as a perfect uh, measuring tool for spiritual growth for the existential matters that the church deals in. There's just no truly accurate way to do that. But attendance on its own is wildly, wildly inaccurate. The analogy I always use is that attendance is kind of like the weight number on a scale. You can be gaining weight for healthy reasons. You can be gaining weight for unhealthy reasons. You can be losing weight for healthy reasons. You can be losing weight for unhealthy reasons. If all you have is the number on a scale, one, it's not going to really give you a great insight into overall health. It could be misleading. And what do we know about people that obsess about the numbers on the scale? It can often lead to really harmful and unhealthy behavior because they're not truly dedicating themselves to holistic health. They've just narrowed in on one specific thing that you can manipulate in either direction for good or for bad. Yeah.
So that means it's okay. That, that's troubling. Church attendance is very much the same way. I can set up a Facebook ads campaign in your church where we set up something around Easter, something around Christmas. Maybe it's a photo booth where we have some like characters dress up as frozen, you know, at the Christmas service. We can do a big Easter egg drop. We could do a family barbecue. We do a harvest carnival around, you know, Halloween time. Ooh, first day of fall on the day we're recording this. We'll do some type of harvest carnival. Ooh, like apple cider. That's a lot of fun. And we can spend a small amount of money, a modest amount of funds on Facebook ads, and we can connect families and people in your community to this event. And they can be on your church property or on the place where your church physically meets, maybe for the first time. And that's a great first step. But if what comes after that is not some type of fabric in your church that will move them towards involvement and not just consuming, well, then what are we doing it for? Is the backbone there truly set up to facilitate spiritual growth and spiritual practice and being part of a vibrant community? Because if we talk about the consumer side of things, which has come up a couple of times, one of the reasons that church is so much less compelling today than it was 30 years ago is because I can listen to a superior Christian teacher on podcast, and I can engage with higher quality worship through Spotify. And so if what our Sunday services are baked around are commodities that can be experienced elsewhere, and in many cases, like better in other places, then what is the compelling reason to go to church? Well, what I know about church is that what makes it such a beautiful entity, you know, what makes it so powerful is the in-person community. When you're walking with people in real life and they're celebrating the wins in your life and they're mourning with you when things go bad and they stick with you, well, that's something you cannot get really anywhere. Like what we know about social media, what we know about the time we're living through right now is that like there's a lot of loneliness, a lot of people feeling isolated. Well, you can find real community in churches, except our experiences aren't indexed towards community. And it's okay to rally around programming. Like, you know, some people might be thinking like, okay, so we just want us to show up and we just like all like look at each other awkwardly and we're like, okay, let's have community. Yeah, yes, you need to have something to rally around. And that's why programming can be there. So long as the programming there exists to facilitate the community. We have a lot of lip service towards that. Churches will say, you know, we believe in circles, not roads. I'm like, well, your budget says elsewhere, elsewise. You know, like... The, the amount of energy that you put into your in-person programming to make it like brilliant on the production side of things, you know, says something different. And again, I don't want to paint those as like the enemies, like good production is somehow uh, means you can't have something that indexes towards true in-person community. No, that, that, that's just a false dichotomy, of course. It's about the intention and the motivation. And that will come back to how you measure fulfillment of mission in your church. And getting something there that's going to be more holistic, give you a more accurate read on like, are we on the right trajectory as a church? Even if we're not like exploding in numbers, are the people here, are they becoming more like Jesus? And if they are, and you're able to like see that in the numbers, well, then you can start making better decisions because you can see what did we do that contributed to this fulfillment of mission? Okay, let's do more of that. And now... The trajectory is pointing in the right direction, and you can make more and more decisions to continue going there. And then you do that for one, two, five, ten years, and you know the fruit that comes from that will it'll speak for itself. Yeah, yeah. One of the I think one of the things that kind of um, is sparking in my brain is around the idea of digital discipleship. You know, the 
the measurement, right? How often what happens is uh, a pastor, a church, a movement will look at the idea of digital discipleship, social media engagement and say, well, they're not showing up in the building, right? Because again, the numbers game that, that we talked about earlier, um, they're not showing up in the building. And so therefore it's not successful. It's not, you know, serving the goal of getting more seats in the building, more, more people in more seats. And so for, for you, Brady, the idea of the d- digital discipleship, fulfilling a mission, uh, your space inside helping churches use internet tools, digital tools, can you speak a little bit about maybe the balance you feel of, well, addressing that need for, hey, I understand you want more people in the seats, but maybe a better use of social media, use of digital tools, if you change the mission. You spoke to it a little bit, but maybe if you could expand a little bit in in the sense of actually moving towards a what we would call a digital discipleship plan, digital discipleship goal. Sure. Does that make sense? It does. I I do believe that like our faith is an embodied faith and that being with people is uh, uh, like a non-negotiable. I think a lot of people sometimes uh, see me as uh, a person that talks about churches embracing the online world and the uh, misconception you can you know, jump to this assumption that, oh, he thinks that, you know, online ministry is the equivalent to in-person or that they are somehow interchangeable. And uh, I don't believe that. I think that when it's at its best, our online efforts and our in-person efforts are working to supplement one another. And they're working as partners because what you can do online, so much of that is not possible in person. But what you can do in person, so much of that is not possible online. And when you're aware of the key differences and you've divested from attendance as the key metric, now you can be a lot more creative, you can be a lot more thoughtful, and you can use both avenues to see more people engaging with spiritual practice, connecting with one another, and moving more towards uh, Jesus. So one example of this is... uh, you know, most church websites, let's say, um, they have a lot of emphasis on helping people plan a visit, which is uh, a great thing that your website should have. Uh, people often go to a church's website because they want to know where are they, what time is service, what can I expect? So that's great. One thing that is very absent for most church websites is really emphasis at all on, let's say, spiritual practice. And what we know about spiritual practice, and we see this precedent set in scripture, is that there are spiritual practices that can be observed when physical proximity is impossible. So if you look at the beginning of every epistle, you know, Paul's like, hey, church from afar, I'm praying for you, even though we're not together in person, hope to see you soon. So uh, we developed this free prayer tool called Nucleus Prayer, and it's, uh, we made it free so that I could talk about it freely without it sounding like a sales job. It is 100% free, no credit card. You just need an email and a password to access it. You can go to nucleus.church slash free. We made this tool and it works on any church website. What it's meant to do is introduce some level of spiritual practice on your church's website. So it's not just dedicated to, hey, come see us in person, but it's like, hey, do you need prayer right now? Submit a prayer request. And then if you're part of that church's community, you can log in and you can see the prayer wall of all the people's prayer requests. 
And we have this little function called prayer time where you can enter into it and it shows you one prayer request at a time. So whether you're on your phone, you're on your computer, or you're air playing in a small group, that app to the, to the TV screen where everyone can see it, you can go through each one, one at a time. And you can set up notifications. So when someone pray, submits a prayer, it can be sent directly to you. And so that's an example of digital discipleship that isn't taking the place of in-person ministry, um, but it's supplementing it. And it's making something like pastoral care, something like bearing each other's burdens, mourning with those who mourn, celebrating uh, with those that celebrate. It's making it accessible in what we say are the 167 hours beyond your Sunday service every week. Like we have this, you know, this fun catchphrase at our company, seize the 167. 168 hours every week, Sunday service, let's say, is neatly one hour. Well, what is your church doing to fulfill mission and to meet people where they are in the other 167? Because, yeah, sure, prior to 1991, which is the year I was born, maybe you had to wait until next Sunday or it was Sunday night or you have a midweek meeting. Well, now you can connect with people at all times. And if you can create substantive, meaningful ways to connect, and what we're trying to do at our tech platform, Nucleus, is like truly use tech to not just like facilitate online giving, but to like actually spur people on towards spiritual practice, to facilitate pastoral care online when it's needed, when it's possible, as a way of supplementing what's also being done in person. Because again, I don't see it as a replacement. So that, that's one practical way. Um, we also encourage churches to use social media in this way. Uh, you know, we, we kind of pioneered this type of social media post that's a, it's a video, and now these work really neatly on, uh, on Reels and on, on TikTok where you basically have this countdown. And so it's a 60 second countdown. And so you get on it and the prompt is like, hey, stop right now, stop what you're doing and, and pray for, and then we'll like kind of insert a unique type of spiritual practice prompt. So sometimes it's like, hey, stop right now and pray for your spouse for 60 seconds. Or sometimes it's, hey, stop right now and meditate on this verse as we display it on the screen. And that's meant to say, hey, wherever you are right now, you're on your phone and, and might, 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 might be a great time to write, just stop and like, you know, meditate on some scripture, say a prayer, uh, consider those that like, you know, might be going through something different than you. And that's a way to redeem social media time. But it's also a way for a church to use social media in a way that is fulfilling your mission. That is going to spur on spiritual practice, no matter where someone is in the 167 hours beyond Sunday service. And it's not just something like, hey, we got a new sermon series. Hope to see you on Sunday. Yep. Promotional stuff is fine. Maybe one out of every five posts at most. But what can we do in that other, you know, 80% of the content? And how can we fulfill our mission uh, online in that way? Yeah, no, I, I love that, that you're talking really from high level. How does everything come down, you know, from the little to, to then begin to fulfill mission? You know, we talked a lot about that. And one of the things I think, you know, obviously we've talked a lot about it. I think really to kind of help bring everything together that we talked about today. You know, here at Pocket Pulpit, we believe that social media and tech advancements have the ability to address the corporatization of the church. Uh, we talked a little bit about that. And, and really, they have the power to spin it out of control or to take hold of it to empower those who haven't been able to afford platforms, who haven't been able to afford being competitive in the church market. Um, we can easily see the advantages, but when it's when it's easy to catch follower fever or when it's easy to see, okay, we got the sales, right? Again, moving up, up and to the right. It can be hard to identify that the new ways businesses might use these tools and to take advantage of the church. But 
what can we do to protect the church, uh, both spiritually? And I love what you're talking about, like the prayer tools and with using media in a way that is, it's not uh, an ulterior motive, but really is about fulfilling the mission. What are ways that we can protect resources that our people have entrusted to us as uh, corporations and uh, nonprofits uh, to be good stewards of those things? And I have a specific example, but I want to hear hmm. your thoughts before I mention that. Okay. Uh, my answer is probably not going to be like especially uh, glamorous, but I truly believe that it's important. And that is um, leading the way or setting the standard for privacy standards online. So one example of this is uh, BuzzFeed News. So not BuzzFeed, the quiz site, but their investigative journalism side of the company. BuzzFeed News came out with this report earlier this year. And it was this big expose into prayer apps that essentially mine data that these millions of users would use on like these sites. And these aren't like prayer apps like on a church's website. These are like prayer apps for like, you know, hey, you're a Christian, sign up for this prayer app and you can like, you know, connect your prayers to people around the world. Sort of like that, like social media prayer apps. What these apps were doing was if you looked into their privacy policy, they had left uh, the standards for what they would do with your information, very ambiguous. And essentially what they had given the leeway to do was take this sensitive information and then sell it to the third party sites that their sole focus is to create selling profiles of people and of you connected to IP and connect all these different things so that they can better sell you something. So the full report is on BuzzFeed News and feel free to read that. Um, but like one example was like, you could go on and like say something about, oh, you know, I'm just, you know, my marriage, it's, it's tough right now. Like, and you submit that as a prayer request, which is great. Like, that's what prayer should be, right? Sharing our most vulnerable things with, you know, the people that can pray for us and with, with God. Well, that information could then be tailored to a specific profile. So you might see like a book recommendation on like, oh, like fix your, fix your marriage with this biblical, you know, uh, help book for, you know, 1999, um, which is, you know, maybe the worst thing ever. It's like, like it, it's really disturbing and distressing to hear something like that. Um, but these are unfortunately the privacy standards of the internet. You know, I talked about the internet being this, like it's in this adolescent phase. And one of the things that all of us collectively have kind of like given into is that like, yeah, of course this app has all my information. Yes, I, I, I understand the tech in my phone cannot actually listen to me when I'm with my friends. Like Amazon Alexa can't hear me from across the room. There's no way my phone can hear me in my pocket as I talk about, um, you know, Pop-Tarts with my friends. And, and, but then I go on Facebook and I'm getting advertised Pop-Tarts. Yeah, that's because everything online knows everything about you. And so they know you so well based on all the information that you have opted in with every single terms and conditions that you say, yeah, whatever, 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 for 15 years, that they know you that well, that they can like predictably offer you things. And it seems like it's so accurate. It's so accurate that they must be listening to me. If they are listening to you, it's just as bad, but either way they know. And so what we're starting to see in the last couple of years is like a number of companies, and we are trying to lead the way with this in the church space um, with our platform Nucleus, because we're like, it feels like if anyone should care about privacy, especially when we're dealing with sensitive stuff like, like prayers, it should be a church platform. Like if we want to use a prayer tool, like I mentioned in that last you know, question and answer, if we really want our church to use it, then it's our responsibility as the creators of the platform and it's the church's responsibility that uses that platform to protect that data. 
Otherwise, we shouldn't expect people to be really raw and vulnerable. And so like one example of this is like there are kind of like legacy prayer plugins that you can like find. I can just go onto Google and I can write like a church's name and like prayer and I can find their public prayer page indexed in Google, aggregated by Google, one of the largest, you know, ads companies in the world. And then I can see people's first names and last names. And I know where they live within like, you know, uh, presumably a 10 mile, 20 kilometer radius if they live near that church. And I got their first and last name and they're talking about like their kids and their medical diagnosis. And it's just all there. Because again, privacy just wasn't something that we thought about in like 2012. We were like, ooh, top eight friends. Like, you know, (laughs) I was gonna let you know. So we're starting to turn the corner on that. And I think churches can play a, a, a big role in championing, uh, championing that. Again, it's not especially glamorous. And sometimes it can make things a little bit more like cumbersome to use. So, so one example of this is if you submit a prayer to Nucleus Prayer and you have notifications on, and I get a notification, okay, Sarah submitted a prayer request. That gets sent to me through email and it'll say, hey, new prayer in Nucleus Prayer, you have notifications on, see it. But what won't be included in that email is Sarah's name or the details of her prayer request. Because if that was included, well, guess who runs the email account? Well, Google. So even if we protected it behind a login on the app itself and we sent it through Gmail, well, they'll index it there. So that's an example of like, oh, it'd be nice if I saw all that information right in my email, right? But that would be a hole in the privacy. You'd be basically like undoing everything you've done to protect it up to that point. So what you have to do is you have to click on that button and then log into your Nucleus account. And then you can see the stuff to make sure it's, it's secure and private. And over time, what this does is it gives ideally a congregation like the trust. Okay, this stuff is sensitive and I feel like the church does, I can trust them to take care of it. So that's one example. Obviously, there's so many different directions we could take, like how can churches yeah. champion like, you know, caring for our people. But, you know, that's one that's really practical and often, often overlooked because it's, it's just not as exciting as like, oh, we got a viral post on Instagram or whatever. Yeah. One of the things Sarah said uh, at the top of the, the conversation was that, you know, watching you interact online in a way that is uh, consistent with the way you present yourself. And so I, I, I have to say this was a, a little while back. And so, but I, I remember you getting into a conversation about like the giving apps and, and you guys, mm. you posted like, here are the different percentages and formulas and, and you know, the way that we're different and we stand out because we're trying to be ethical. We're trying to be upfront about how we process payment for tithing. And I thought that was so interesting because it was, we're not just going to bash the other companies for a one-up, right? It's we're putting out the information of this is how Nucleus giving works as well. Does that sound familiar? Did I mess that that up? Oh, oh yeah. Yeah, I, yeah. You know, you nailed it, actually. I think it was a Twitter thread. You know, someone might come across Nucleus Tithing, come across that thread and go, oh, here's this company that's kind of bashing other giving companies. But like, what is the heart behind, one, the decision you made, the distinction you're making, and the ethics behind that, if, if you uh, don't mind sharing that with us? Yeah, sure. So this is a conversation that would, you know, take an hour on its own. Yeah. And obviously we don't have the, the, the full scope for that. Uh, we have put together like, uh, if, if you, if you want to get into the nitty gritty of this, because it is like 
if you want to get into like some of the the not so nice stuff that's happening behind the scenes in like the church tech space uh, we have a whole blog post on it on the nucleus blog uh nucleus.church slash blog it's called like the ultimate guide to church giving fees it's also on youtube if you're more of a oh i like listening to someone talk than reading it but essentially like anytime a transaction exists in in the entire world digitally so you go to the convenience store and you swipe your card or you buy something on amazon there is um a fee that has to be paid which is why when you go to like the convenience store and you like don't spend enough money sometimes they'll be like hey you got to pay x amount to use your credit card because if let's say you bought four dollars worth of gummy candy like i would at the convenience store because i love gummies they would not get four dollars they would get four dollars less 25 cents and like three percent of what you bought and so if you're a convenience store with a really small margin you've you can't just like have digital transactions that have taken over the world in the last 10 years like erode your already small profit margin now that becomes even more precarious in the nonprofit world because even a convenience store can raise its prices to compensate for people that are using credit cards it can raise their prices 3% and offset the cost of digital transactions but what happens when everyone starts giving online because of a pandemic and suddenly churches are losing 3% on average uh, of their gifts and here's when things get especially uh, insidious. So church giving companies like my own, Nucleus Giving, like Pushpay, Tithely, Subsplash, Ministry Brands, any of these big companies, they will partner with one of these processing companies. And I'll try to make, I'll try to make this quick. But essentially the processing companies are these giant companies that you, have, you wouldn't even recognize the names, but they are the ones that power every financial transaction. Church giving companies will partner with one of them and then they will build their church giving app on top of them. And the church giving app will show you that nice dashboard. It lets you create giving funds. It helps you manage recurring giving. It creates a nice giving portal so that people that do give online to your church have like, ooh, it's like they remembered my info. I can save my credit card. Oh, this is so nice. But the church giving companies like mine, like these other ones, we're not the ones that are actually processing the money. Those are these giant companies that are the behind the scenes of every financial transaction that happens. But what happens? when you partner with one of these financial companies is they'll tell you, hey, um, Hector, we're gonna take 2% to cover our fees. What percentage do you wanna take? And, and, and you can say, oh, I get to keep a percentage too? I'm not even processing the money. And they'll say, well, you could take like 1%. And what happens is that these giving companies are essentially pocketing 1%, sometimes more, it's not always disclosed off the top of every gift that a church receives. So the, the, the analog equivalent of this is if there was the, the, the wicker basket company that made the baskets that we used to put money in, in person, would at the end of every Sunday, the, the basket company would look at all the money and say, okay, 1% of that money goes to us, the basket company. And you'd say to the basket company, like, can I just buy the basket? Like, no, 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 this is our profit model. We take 1% of every single gift your church receives, and that allows you to use these, um, these baskets to receive money. It is a very, very profitable financial model. And the church space is where most giving in the States goes towards. And donations in, the, in, in, in America, is, is, you know, it's billions and billions of dollars. And most of that goes to churches. And so if you have tech platforms that get to keep just 1% of that, it sounds like nothing, 
but for the average church, it accounts for more than a thousand dollars per month on average for the average church, which is obscene. Cause like, you know, a website provider costs what $30 a month to use and your church giving provider, which is providing a very similar service in terms of the code and the numbers behind the scenes is charging you 2000. Why are we allowing this to happen? Well, cause nobody knows. And I didn't even know it was happening until somebody told me. And so like, that's why we decided to build Nucleus Giving because we're like, well, we just want churches to have a different option. And it's really, it's really tough to talk about this. And you said this, but like, how do you talk about this without sounding like, use our service, don't use somebody else's service. The other side of that is that if you don't build something yourself and you criticize the industry, people would say, well, then do something about it. So we're trying to do something about it. And we're trying to talk about it very openly inevitably you're going to step on some toes and some of the other church giving companies have not been especially pleased with some of these statements that we've made. I try my very best to speak matter of factly based in evidence and not speaking emotionally or speaking in such a way where I'm adding my own like color commentary to it. So look, look here's what you're doing. Here's the evidence. It's bad. And, uh, Maybe even me just saying it's bad is the color commentary they don't care for. But if you want to read more, like, again, there's a, there's a full article that explains this in math, in diagrams. The reason churches don't understand what's happening is because nobody wants to talk about math and spreadsheets, except for me. I love the math and spreadsheets. And, and what it means is, like, when people start using, you know, a service that doesn't take your money uh, and charges you just a flat fee, like your website provider would, you get all that money back for ministry, which is great, because then we can do more things and meet more needs. It reminds me of Office Space. They take the fraction of a cent. Have you watched Office Space? Oh, uh, I, I've watched The Office, but Office Space oh, is a bit no. before my time, slightly. Darn. Well, listen, the two of you, this is your homework assignment. If you, uh, Brady, I am certain that you would love Office Space. I'm certain of it. So that's <laughs> I've your only assignment. heard great things. Yes. So to so after after we get up here, you just need to go watch it. That's the the rest of your afternoon it's perfect okay that's <laughs> um, all the meetings so okay so well, since that's a reference that only the older woman in the room understands we'll just move along <laughs> uh, <laughs> so there are those sort of things that your average pastor isn't going to know about they're not going to know that that they're that this prayer information might be not private or that these these pennies on the dollar are just you know, flying out. So are you, are you on the lookout for these things for like your blog? Is it, you're on the lookout and they'll be able to, like, if they were to follow your blog, would they be able to find continuing information about these things as you found out? Or are there other places that they can stay aware that would be good for them to follow so that they can be aware so that they aren't taken advantage of? Hmm. Well, I mean, that Buzzfeed news report kind of like was shared with me. Yeah, I wouldn't say, hey, if you're a church wanting to be in the know on the church tech world, follow BuzzFeed News. It seems unlikely that they would do another type of big report on that. Yeah. But that was one that kind of was like, ooh, I, I shared it so that everyone could read it. We definitely are probably one of the more vocal platforms talking about what's happening in the church tech space. Because the reality is the average pastor, Protestant pastor in the States is, is about 60 years old. And the number of pastors 55 plus has tripled since the year I was born. And so the reality is that they're in ministry their whole lives. And suddenly, after 40 years of ministry, they got to deal with the internet. 
it's not going to be like a first language to them. And so it's totally understandable that they wouldn't see what's happening. Even younger people, like I had to be made aware of this because I, I didn't know. I was just like, oh yeah, go use that giving company. They're free. Wait, they're not free? Oh, they take 1% of every gift your church receives in perpetuity with no cap. Oh no, that seems bad. I, I was not aware of that. And so we, we try to talk openly about behind the scenes and that also helps us keep um, stay accountable ourselves, right? Like we're, we're not immune to like, oh, we want more profit. We want like, we, we ran the numbers for the first three years of our giving platform and we had saved churches more money in that 1% fee than we had made in gross revenue. Hmm. And we were growing and doing well and had healthy profit margins. But they weren't obscene profit margins. Because I was like, wait, wait, our company's doing well and growing and we're hiring and we keep building new platforms and products. And we've saved churches more money than we've earned. Like you start to think about that. It's like, it's like when I look at MBA contracts, I'm like, they make how much money? Like, wow, that's that's amazing. Like that is a lot. I can't even really understand that much money. And so talking about this also keeps us accountable, right? Like we're the ones yeah. that are saying, we got to do this. We got to stick to our principles and resist the pull of more money and up into the right. And it's like, no, 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 that's not the number one priority. Like effectiveness in churches, that's what we want. We want to help churches, we want to serve churches. And yes, we need to have a healthy profit margin too. In our company, we talk about clearing the runway so that we don't ever have to make decisions against our principles or fold because we just weren't profitable enough. And so, you know, it's like we talked about at the beginning of this call, managing those two is like not an easy tension to manage. There is no solution. There is no cut and dry playbook that will give you the right answer every time. It's a tension that needs to be managed. And that tension will always exist. One thing I would love to hear from you about, I think people who know you know they're already interested in online ministry and um, the church online and that sort of stuff. And I know pastors and church leaders who are in that place, who work alongside pastors and church leaders, who instead of using social media for ministry, like if they had an event coming up, they would rather pay hundreds for printed material to, to hand out than create free social media posts and engage their people to like and comment and share and to, to use that free path. And I would just like to hear what you think the reservations for those people are and how can the people who are working alongside them who have already caught the vision of digital discipleship and online church and, and using the tools in that way, how can they encourage those who haven't to come along? I, I think about, well, I've heard that it's going to take like another, what was it, 20 or 30 years before this will just sort of be accepted the norm. And my response is always like, no, let's just get it done now. Like we don't need to wait 20 or 30 years. And, and I hate to feel, cause that also to me feels like we're just going to age it out. Right. You know, is there like, what is your encouragement for people in those situations? And do you see hope that we won't just have to wait and age it out? Yeah, I do. Uh, I think that we've always done it this way. Mindset is, is really tricky and it is pervasive in a lot of industries. Uh, the church being one of them, but it's not like, you know, the church isn't the only industry where that mindset is uh, pervasive. It, it's, it's in healthcare, it's in government, it's in education. These uh, industries that have been around for a long time and have a lot of red tape and there's just like a lot of tradition and it's not easy to like turn a cruise ship around because it takes a long time to start going in the opposite direction because it just, there's a lot to move. 
And so I think being aware of that mindset, it, that, that's really like the resistance, right? Like if you are, if you've always done mailers every year around Easter, and then you have someone who's like, you know, 30 years, your, your junior come to you and say, we should do Facebook ads. It's like, okay, I have a lot of evidence on my side because we have done mailers for this many years. And if we've done something for this many years, there must be validity to it. Otherwise, I have to reconcile with the fact that I've been making a mistake or I've been doing something that's good but not great for many years, which is a very challenging thing for anyone to admit. It's also very challenging to assume that or to make the, 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 the claim that, yes, you've done something one way, Pastor, for this many years, but the world has changed. And that is now longer is, is no longer the best thing to do. Like if you are a pastor who's 55 and, and you have to come to one of two conclusions, either what you used to do is no longer effective or the young people are wrong. Which one are you going to come to? I'm going to come to the conclusion of why would I trust someone with no life experience? Why would I trust someone who's just said, Oh yeah, of course you think that I've been doing this for 30 years. Okay. So if you are someone that's trying to convince uh, someone to do something different, you got to understand where they're coming from and, and why they feel the way that they do and, and why what you're kind of recommending is like, it's no small thing. So what, the way we always teach this is that what you want to do is you want to go to your senior leader and you want to articulate the mission and the vision that they have cast and show that you understand what you as a church are trying to accomplish. And basically establish that this isn't about like strategy A or strategy B. This is about, again, fulfillment of mission and how we can be effective and efficient. And then you want to basically outline a proposal that says, this is the goal of our church. And I know it's the goal because you've articulated this mission, Pastor, and I'm articulating it back to you to show that I have internalized it and I understand it. I have an idea for how we can fulfill the mission and it is going to cost this much less and require this much work and should return this much better results. And at least in like, uh, uh, in, uh, with large scale data, we know that social media outperforms and under costs print media by a, a considerable margin. If you want to learn the exact strategy I'd recommend, we have a full guide on it. It's the Facebook ads for churches, ultimate guide, type it in YouTube, type it in Google, you'll find it. It's also on my link in bio if you go to Brady Shearer on Instagram or TikTok. And the church giving guide is on the link in bio as well, if that's easier to find it there. So I would make that proposal and then say like, hey, like this is about effectiveness. The, the, the challenge is like not every senior leader is going to prioritize fulfillment of mission and effectiveness above all. A lot of the times what we prioritize is comfort and we've always done it this way. And I, there's no like silver bullet for helping a leader acknowledge that. That's tricky. And so our process is basically articulating the mission to them, showing you understand it, making a proposal for how to fulfill that mission in a way that should cost less and perform better. And then ideally, you even go, hey, just let me do this, okay? I'm going to show you that this works. Do it with as little budget or as little resources as possible. Because people are going to the senior leader all the time. They're saying, you should do this differently. You should do this differently. And they're like, okay, one, I don't believe you. And two, I have things to do. So those are the two kind of things you need to work around. First is like, I know, you, I know you're skeptical. Here, 
I'm proving. We always talk about the three S framework when it comes to communication, stories, stats, and steps. So a story, we'll be talking about, go to my case study on this. Hey, here are some churches that did Facebook ads and it resulted in this. There's the story. Stats, get the data on print versus digital. It's not difficult to track down. And then steps, here's exactly how we're going to do it. And, and I got this, okay? All I need for you is to give me the $150 to do the Facebook ads. You're going to spend $1,500 on print material. Go ahead, do that this year. Spend $13.50, give me $150 for the Facebook ads. I'm going to follow Brady's framework. I'm going to do it. And we're going to see how things work out. And I'm not, if I'm wrong, that's okay. Because I care about effectiveness, Pastor. I just want to fulfill our mission. It's not about my strategy versus yours. It's about, is there a better and more affordable way to do this? Because that means more people connected to church, more people connected to Jesus. That's what we want. So that, that, that's how we recommend navigating these conversations. Uh, the best thing you can do for yourself is understanding the perspective of the other person. Yes, it might not make logical sense why they're making these decisions. So if it's not rational, then you need to understand the psychological and emotional reasons that are motivating it because you can't go to someone that's being emotional with ration, with logic, and be like, look, you're being emotional. I can demonstrably prove it. And I know this because it has not been effective with my wife. So... <laughs> oh. Well, hey, uh, this conversation with, with you, Brady, has been just informative. It's been just excellent to hear kind of the different places uh, in the online world that you're thinking of and uh, just trying to see the church do better, but also then putting some skin in the game as well, as, as you talked about. And so I just want to hear, I mean, uh, one of the things that we love here is knowing that when you're trying something, you fail. There's great success stories and there's great failure stories. And so we just want to hear a time that you were trying to minister in this space. Um, and obviously there's a lot that you're involved in, but just, just a story uh, where you failed and you learned something. Sure. Do you want to hear the time I, um, I failed at launching something or do you want to hear about the time I embarrassed myself in front of Erwin McManus? Ooh. <laughs> I don't know. I got to roll the dice on this gonna... one. Yeah. Let's do Erwin. Yeah. Okay. I mean, obviously that was the, <laughs> okay. So I've never told this story publicly. Oh. So I was at a conference and it was a conference that uh, I was connected to, knew the, the founders. And so they were kind of like, Hey, what we'd like to do is after the, the speakers do their, their main keynote, what we want to do is have you interview them. And then we'll use that for like our online kind of portion. So you weren't, you're not going to hear their full keynote, but you'll get like Brady and them interacting. And so we're at this big church in America. You know, again, I'm Canadian. We just, I go to like one of the biggest churches in Canada and it's dwarfed by like the average mega church in the States. And so the sanctuary or the auditorium where the conference was holding its main sessions was on one side of the church. And we had set up this interview in this really picturesque aesthetic chapel on the far other side of the church where the lighting was great, you know, cause we're gonna publish this online. That's where they wanted to film it in this really nice chapel. So it was my job to like, not only interview these speakers but like I had to track them down and then like guide them to the chapel. So basically one of the handlers at the conference like they bring me Erwin McManus and they're like, okay. And everyone's like, hi, what am I doing here? What, who are you? And I was like, oh yeah, so I'm here. We're gonna do an interview. And I'm just going to talk, and this is for this conference. We're going to publish it online later. And he's like, oh, okay. And if you've ever spoken on stage, 
it's really um it's really like discombobulating when you get off stage and like the adrenaline's been going and suddenly like you're being like funneled to do something else like you get off stage and usually okay i just need to like get my bearings for a little bit because like being on stage uh even if you do it all the time like there is adrenaline that comes with that and so you come off and suddenly you got this little kid in your face i was like 23 24 at the time and i got this mic like we're gonna do an interview and then we had to walk it was a mile i feel like it was this 11 minute walk from one side of the church to the other and um erwin and i have interacted a couple of times online uh and then this one time person seems like a very you know kind person also a uh, very creative person like one of those types of creatives that's like maybe a little quieter and like a brilliant thinker but not like as dynamic in a one-on-one setting and so like we're walking and he's just like silent and i'm like oh this is awkward and i'm usually pretty good in these interactions but i'm fumbling so i'm like i hear you like fashion (laughs) and he's like yeah and i was like oh no this guy's not giving me anything i was like so how was your talk he's like it was good and i was like okay clearly this guy's not in the time to talk but we gotta walk a column so we walk a whole way we do the whole interview but then we have to walk back together and I was like, oh, my, like, I'm dying on the inside. This poor guy is putting up with me. Eventually, I strike gold. And I ask him, I'm like, oh, um, so you're from L.A. Are you a Lakers fan? And that, that gets him fired up. He's like, no, I'm a Clippers fan. And I'm like, oh, we're going to talk basketball. And then I had it. And then we talked basketball for a little while. And it was like finally like a little bit natural because I, I think like, you know, someone who talks shop all the time, like it's, it's, you talk shop, you're used to it. When someone like hits on like one of your genuine interests that has nothing to do with your professional life, you can kind of get into like different territory. So I got in there, we talked about that. The last interaction we had online was like two weeks ago. And I told him I, I was using his church's name as a church name that I thought was good. And I was like, Mosaic Church is a good name. And he got in the comments. He's like, Mosaic Church is not our name. It's Mosaic only. Thanks for the highlight. And I was like, well, my record of just bumbling it with Erwin. <laughs> it's just a tradition at this point. So. Oh, that's awesome. All right. And um, no, I like the finding that connection with people. And, you know. It only took like 25 minutes. So I'm a natural. <laughs> yeah. And so, okay. So we don't ever want to le- end on a downer. So tell us the time that you were trying to minister online or encourage churches in this way. And it went well. I mean, I think. There's a lot of like business success that we've been, you know, really lucky, fortunate to have achieved. But one of my favorite parts about what we do is cataloging when churches take our information or our tools and use them and like they work. So like one of the things I love highlighting on our Instagram stories is like, we'll get a testimony from someone and I'll like post like this stuff works because a lot of times like you're skeptical, like, oh, this won't work for me. This won't work for us. And so like, if you go to nucleus.church slash results. Like we made a whole page of just screenshots of people from churches. And there's just dozens and dozens of people that are like, I tried this thing that Brady taught, or we used this tool that Brady gave away, or we're a Nucleus subscriber. And here's how it led to more next steps. It did this. And from there, spiritual practice. From here, pastoral care. From here, people becoming more like Jesus. From here, people coming to our church for the first time. From here, people getting into a relationship with Jesus, recommit. 
And, and so like, there isn't one that comes to mind, but I think of this tapestry that uh, a mosaic, if you will, on that site of just all of these testimonies and they're all from different platforms. So like, it doesn't look like all nicely designed. They're just random screenshots from my phone, from my desktop of like, it's one thing to put out your work into the world. It's another when you get feedback and like, hey, I actually tried this in my context and it did X, Y, or Z, like it made this difference. And there's just nothing more rewarding than that. Yeah. Yeah. Feels like a, a good, good work. Good job. And it keeps you going as well, you know, because a lot of the times when you publish something online, people will say, why are your eyebrows look funny? And you're like, mm, I don't know what to do with that. So <laughs> I am made in the image of God, sir. You're like, well, your eyebrows aren't because I can't see you. <laughs> Visible eyebrows. Awesome. Well, hey, thanks so much uh, for your time, but I really appreciate the, the conversation and the, the thoughts. Uh, just, yeah, really appreciate your, your presence online and the work that you're doing and, and your companies are doing. So thanks for the invite. I had a blast. Absolutely. Well, hey, thank you so much again for listening to the Pocket Pulpit podcast. We're so thankful uh, just to start again, season two. Here we are. And for more conversations, find us in your favorite podcast app and check out some of the other uh, podcasts of the network the church digital podcast network uh, hey it's been a blast this week and we'll see you next time bye bye